Okay, great to be with you again tonight uh, to uh, enjoy this time together. Uh, I mentioned to you this morning that the things that we talked about this morning, I was going to give an opportunity to discuss a little bit, and if you have questions, that we can, uh, we can uh, go over those. Uh, I've talked to some of you, and they go, well, I, I didn't have any questions, it just seemed plain as day to me, and I'm like, what is the matter with this church? You know? I spent four years working on this and just now had the guts to preach it. And, and you say you got it. So um, I, I, don't, I don't know. Probably something wrong with how slow I am, I guess, in, in understanding things. I probably dropped a lot of hints about this for the last four years, too. So you're just like, oh, this is, this is old hat. But anyway, let's, let's talk about a few things. And I'm going to bring some things up that uh, hopefully you have some comments or questions about. And we can discuss those. If you just understand everything perfectly, I'll shut my Bible and we can go home. Uh, but uh, prob probably we'll see a few things here, okay? I want to start with the parables of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13. And, uh, and just briefly, this is this will lay a, a, a brief foundation. Uh, remember in Matthew 13, Jesus tells uh, nine parables that day. The first five parables, one of which is not in Matthew's account, but in Mark's. But the first five parables give us pictures of the kingdom. And so let's, let's talk a little bit about that. You first have the parable of the sower. And I think everybody knows that parable fairly well. Uh, when you look at the parable of the sower uh, and understand how uh, Israel would be looking for a physical or earthly type of kingdom that would be similar to other kingdoms, what would you say is one or two things about that parable that would teach something different about God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, that would not have been understood by Israel and frankly wouldn't have been understood by us either uh, if we were looking for that kind of physical kingdom? So what would you say would be be something in there in the parable of the sower that is different from an earthly kingdom. Okay, good. I think that's the real primary thing in that parable. This is the kingdom is received differently. <laughs> Uh, now, if you, you know, kingdoms of this world, even to this day, there's going to be people who don't like who's the king, but they usually don't say too much about it because they'll get killed. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things that you, uh, you, you go along with. But in this particular case, there's different receptions to the kingdom, different ways that, is, that it is received, and uh, thus not a kingdom that is ruled by absolute force, unless, especially, of course, in this, in this present day. And so there's different levels of how people hear the message of, of the kingdom. Anything else about the sower that you might see different? It's not an instantaneous boom, the kingdom. 
uh, it is it, the kingdom of the king is established, but then there's this gradual process uh, that goes on all the time that we're in this present day, uh, in this present life, that it just continues to go in teaching the gospel of the kingdom until there is the time of the end. You go from there then, and uh, you have the parable of the tares, or the newer version's parable of the weeds. I'm, I'm so wedded to tares that I, weeds just sounds weird to me. I don't know. But in the parable of the tares, look in verse 36 and you see the interpretation of the parable. You remember that uh, you have uh, good, good seed planted, good plants, and yet an enemy comes and plants in the, in the, in the uh, field uh, all of these uh, weeds or tares. Tares were uh, a, a, a plant that in the beginning looked very much like wheat. And then when it got to the blooming part, then it, it was very obvious that it was just poisonous, a poisonous plant. All right, so verse 36, then the, he left the crowds, went into the house. His disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the, is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them in the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, or has ears, let him hear. All right, so what is unique about the kingdom in this parable? What's... What's unique that would not be going on typically in a regular earthly kingdom? The heart. Just like the parable of the sower, there has to do with the heart of those who are either receiving or not receiving. That's implied certainly in the text. Okay, good. What else? Yeah, so the, the kingdom is defined here. Uh, the rule of the kingdom or realm of the kingdom is the whole world. So it's not just a, a local place. And uh, the whole world then is filled with either the sons of the evil one or the sons of the Lord. So you, you see that, absolutely. What else is different here? Yeah, so they, we have a situation where, you know, there are massive, masses amount of, massive amount of people who, re, who are rebellious, who have no interest in following the king, and yet the king doesn't send out angels and destroy them. And who else doesn't destroy them? That's right. We don't destroy them. Um, yeah, I, every time I read this, I always think of the Crusades, <laughs> you know, in history, and uh, where uh, the quote-unquote uh, Christians, with they, which they weren't, uh, but uh, decided to uh, go and take back Jerusalem and, and wipe out the Muslims and all this stuff. Well, 
That's the, you didn't read the parable of the tares, dude. <laughs> you know, that's, this, this battle is not uh, waged that way. And, and so you, you see that real difference. It's not until the end when God will gather them out. And you see, then you see those last words, the righteous will shine forth as the sun. In the parable, you see things that happen while time is going on in this life. And then you see things that happen once the restoration of all things has happened and, and you, you have the, uh, the destruction of the evil one, destruction of those who are evil, and then the righteous stand alone. They are without those. And they, in, in, the, in this time, they live together with the unrighteous, but then that changes after time has come to an end. Okay, so you do see those things. And then you, by the way, you back up and you're going to see parable of the mustard seed in verse 31 and 32 and the parable of the leaven in verse 33 and both of those cases you see you again see as Leslie said this gradualness of the kingdom starts very small grows very big the leaven I think always thought was interesting because it seems to leaven fairly quietly you know, when a, usually a king comes into the city as a conqueror, he's doing with all kinds of pomp and ceremony. But in this particular case, it is the, the, the kingdom is just grows by leavening, by us, as you can see, the teaching that goes on. And, and gradually people are coming to Christ. And so you see that picture. All right, just, just those interesting things. This is, this is the foundation then of what you see in the kingdom. Now go over to Hebrews chapter 2. So this, this first part here, I'm just checking in on a few of the passages we looked at and wanting to make sure that or answer any questions that are there. So Hebrews chapter 2, you remember... As we talked about this morning, uh, if you weren't here, really rehearse here a little bit. But in Hebrews 2.5, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world uh, to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower, for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection. Uh, under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Does anybody have any idea of the mistake that has often been made? In fact, I have numerous commentaries in my library that makes this mistake. The mistake that's made with, with just the words I just read as to who it's referring to. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the typical mistake that's made here is, oh, that's referring to Jesus. It didn't work out for us, so, so it worked out for Jesus. And so Jesus basically accomplished what we couldn't accomplish. And he did accomplish what we couldn't accomplish. But the passage is still talking about us. <laughs> the passage is still referring to us. So first question, any questions about that God did not intend to subject the angels, subject the world to come to angels, but then quotes Psalm 8 and, and says all these words. The world to come is going to be in subjection to us. Um, we'll be crowned with glory and honor. Everything in subjection under our feet. 
and then there's nothing left outside of man's control. Any questions about that or any just comments of that's the craziest thing I ever heard in my life? Okay, so verse 9, he just simply says, but see what we, here's something we don't see and here's something we do see. So what do we, what do we not see uh, in verse 8? We do not see everything in subjection to who? Right now, we don't see everything in subjection to who? Alice? To man, yeah. Right now, we don't see anything in subjection to man. As I said this morning, I was, uh, <laughs> I was like, phew, I thought for a minute there, I was supposed to be able to see this, that the whole world was in subjection to, to mankind, and it doesn't look like that at all. We got wildness going on here. <laughs> it is anything but that. So we don't see that. But we do see Jesus having accomplished what the psalmist said would happen and what God said even in the beginning that I'm putting all things in dominion on, uh, under, your, under your feet. Um, you know, it, it, it took me a while to, to, to get that in my mind simply because uh, you, you see in the very beginning God just saying to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over everything. And so you go, well, okay, then I guess we have dominion over everything. And then Psalm 8, David even says, you've, you've given, given all things under his control. You, you put, put him over all things. And, we go, and I keep going, well, it sounds like it is. Okay, but look at God this way. How many times have you read that God says something is going to happen as if it happened, and yet it hasn't happened yet? Uh, like in, in uh, Revelation 13, 8, it, it, uh, the older versions actually say, refer to Jesus as the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. So clear that this was going to happen. It was, so, it was predestined that God could talk about it as if it already had. In fact, God forgave the people in the Old Testament who were faithful as if Jesus had already died. It was already set in stone that that was going to happen. And he could forgive them based upon what was going to happen in the future. So the same thing here. He makes a statement that takes a while for it to actually come to pass. So remember the point then of Hebrews here. What we see is Jesus. And what was Jesus doing? Well, he came down. He suffers because that's the only way he could conquer Satan and he could take away his power and the power of death. He suffers and then, verse 10, it was fitting uh, that he for whom and, for, and by whom all things exist. I don't want to uh, miss that little statement, by the way, there we can come back to it. Uh, by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, or as you can see the marginal reading just in the Greek are all one, which I think is a better way of saying that. He's made us one, and that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers, midst the congregation I will sing your praise. So Jesus pulls us and takes us 
on the same journey he took in order to bring us to the fulfillment of Psalm 8 and Genesis 1. In order for us to be crowned with glory and honor, in order for all things to be in subjection under our feet, in order for the world to come, to, to, for us to have dominion over that world to come. So it is him is that we see him accomplishing it in order that we can follow and have the same thing he has. Make sense? Questions? Now, here's a question. What is that going to be like? I don't know. Don't ask questions. I don't know. So that, that'd be my, my answer. <laughs> so, but somehow, this world to come... I think the, 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 the key is, is to, and this is what the thematic point is going to be tonight. The key is, and you've heard me say this in Isaiah, whatever Jesus accomplishes, he has made it so we will accomplish the same thing and have exactly the same blessings he has. There's, our, there's the main point you're going to see. He see. It says it right here in Hebrews. He said something that in the other passages we looked at this morning actually said concerning Jesus, but also said concerning us as far as that heavenly kingdom, if you will. Okay? Anything on? Really important to understand this Hebrews too. I felt like, and, and it took me a long time to get to this particular point, I felt like this passage was the center point from which you could bring out everything else that you see in Scripture. Because it's so plain about here's what God planned. You don't presently see it, but Jesus accomplished it and He's going to bring many sons to glory. He's going to accomplish and bring you to have attained what you couldn't obtain, of course, by yourself or couldn't have obtained because of sin, but He's going to make that happen. Now, most importantly, what kind of honor is that? I mentioned to somebody this morning, uh, that's pretty weird. You're going to take us, Plano flesh and blood, you're going to take us with all of our faults, with all of our challenges, with all of everything that we have been and are, who have fallen, and you're going to take us and you're going to exalt us in some kind of way that is equal to everything you said about Jesus. And in fact, as we read this morning, Revelation 3.21, Jesus said, what God did for me where I sat down on his throne, you now, if you conquer, you will sit down with me on the throne just as I conquered and sat down on the throne. You conquer and you will sit on the throne with me. And I always thought it was going to be like, okay, Barry, uh, you made it to heaven just barely. Would you please go over there in the far east corner and stay out of my sight because you really were just a goofball and you just barely got in and so I'm just letting you be here. And I was kind of more what I would have grown, grown up with. Yeah, exaltation? No, just barely made it over the edge. <laughs> and yet you see, you see this. Okay? Adam. In Hebrews, the author makes this point.
about sameness, arguably three. He points out that the the sanctified and the, the sanctifier are of one source, so he's not ashamed. Um, and then goes on in verse 14 where it talks about he took on flesh and blood to be like us. So again, we were different, so he became like us. Um, and then uh, toward the end when it talks about um, we are, he is made like his brothers in every respect. The, the ultimate point being about the high priest, but this, this commentary about the similarity or the sameness that will be uh, between us and Christ is um, it's exceptional in how it lays out the fact in the beginning of this that he suffered so that we could be sons. He suffered so that we could be the same. Yeah. Uh, and, that, and that's such a great point because it's the idea of God says, okay, here's my plan for man. And man, of course, fails, which God knew that they would because salvation was planned even before time began. So there is that failure there, that sin there, and yet for Christ to bring us where God intended for us to be has to become like us. This is the reason for... You know, we, we have all, and I'm always including myself when I say we, and I'm, I'm especially pointing that out. But we, we just think in terms of a very simplistic type of thing. Well, Jesus had to come and die for our sins because everything's about our salvation. And, you know, he hated to see us get lost, so he just came down and died for our sin because that's what he had to do. He had to come down die for our sins. Well, you know, that, that's one part, and it's a huge part. But because of that, he explodes all these other blessings. The, the other part we don't often think about. This is the reason we live differently in this world. This is the reason we live as we should live in this world because there is something much greater coming. And he, he has said, like in Luke's account, he who is faithful in little will be faithful in much and I will give them much more. And so there's a responsibility prepared, preparedly wise for that future world, if you will, and, and how and what he's planned for us. We need to show our faithfulness now in order for him to exalt it. And that's what he says in Revelation. He who conquers will receive, the, will sit on the throne with me just as I conquered and sat on the throne. And there's that sameness as Adam said. He had to do the sameness in order to bring us there. So if you're ever scratching your head why, well why didn't God figure out a different way in order to save us? Because to bring us to the goal, he had to come and be saved. And he had to go through the same. And he had to be tempted the same. And he had to die the same. And, he, and then he had to raise in order to explode Satan's kingdom and give us the opportunity to be free, verse 14 of chapter 2, free from the fear of death, 14 and 15. Okay? How are we doing? Any other questions, comments? All right. Oh, sorry. A little bit. No, you can't ever say you're equal with God. You, you always, you're always saying that God is God, and, and 
we become and are referred to as sons and daughters of God, which means we have become like him and he is making us like him. Uh, we will have an interesting dominion over this next world, over whatever this next world is, this new heavens and new earth as he refers to it. But, you know, no place ever uses those terms. We're always, even Jesus is in sub, sub, will maintain a subjection to the Father, just as he has always chosen to do, and so will we. So, you know, it depends on what you say is equal. <laughs> uh, we're receiving an equal reward, as Jesus did. That seems to be pretty apparent. But that doesn't mean, oh, we're as good as he is, or something like that. We're only made that way because of redemption and the ransom price. Function. Well, say function. Yeah, again, roles are always different. And roles are never equal. <laughs> we have unequal roles, equal people. Mike, Mike. So, would it, Adam was in the garden, still was not an glorified state. Yeah, one day, even though there was no sin, yeah. he still did not have complete dominion over the world. Right. He still was not. Yeah, that, that would, I, you know, I can't. I don't know if I can even answer that. You know, what what did Adam have at that time? What was God going to? You know, there's there's all kinds of questions that come up. What if they didn't sin? Well, really, that's almost a mute point because we did. <laughs> That's trying to extrapolate something that we can't, we can't even begin to go. God knew we would. The fact that Titus, Titus chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 says he promised eternal life before time began would suggest that he certainly knew we would, be, we would sin. And as we've talked before in Ephesians, a lot of the purpose is so that we could show the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places the manifold wisdom of God and, and thus help, help or, or be a part of this process of defeating Satan. Adam. Um, to Julie's question about, does that mean we're going to be... So like Good. Romans 8 lays out really clearly that, that we are heirs share the same inheritance that he shared. And so because of that, we are, uh, I'm not to say this, um, we share the same inheritance. And so it's not that we get everything that God has necessarily, we don't, we don't become equal with God. But Christ, um, Christ enabled the spirit of adoption to cry out and say that we would be heirs with him. Um, as opposed to, like you said, often when we think about the kingdom, when we think about heaven, we have been trained, is probably the best way to say it, um, that we will one day be in heaven, we'll all be around the crown, and the, the, the mercy. And, and that we'll just be there, and there'll be a throne, and God will be on that throne. Um, and that's not the concept of what an heir would have. Exactly. 
good, good, good way to put it. I appreciate that very much. You know, it's, it's you, you, it, something you said made me chuckle a little bit. Uh, uh, I used to hear preachers during uh, gospel meetings, especially preachers who would preach an hour and a half and all of this, and, and I'd, I'd hear them say, it's why it's going to be great to get to heaven because it's going to be just one perpetual worship service just like this. And I went, oh, no. <laughs> I was like, no, please, please. I don't think I can, I can do that for eternity. I mean, I love you, Lord, but my goodness, there's got to be something else we're going to be doing. <laughs> yeah, there is going to be. So sometimes there's those simplistic uh, uh, pictures there. But that, that's very good. Uh, we're, we're looking at being an heir. Uh, made sons and daughters like him. You know, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? When Satan said to Eve, God knows that when you eat of this, you'll become like him, knowing good and evil. And God's very intention was to make us like him. When Jesus was tempted, Satan says, here's all the kingdoms of the world. Let me show them. I own them. I can give them to you. you. All you need to do, you can take them, you can have them easily. Uh, all you need to do is fall down and worship me. And yet Christ's very intention was to come and take all the kingdoms of the world. But the very thing that was the intention, Satan says we can shortcut that, make it a lot easier on you. So we can shortcut some of those things by not you know, submitting to God and just submitting to Satan, it's going to feel like a brief time we shortcutted it and grabbed something that God wouldn't give us. And yet God's intention is to give us all things and nothing left out of our control, which I don't even, you know, begin to understand that either. But there's a tremendous submission that is talked about there. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1 right quick. This was read for us by Crash this morning, I mean this morning, <laughs> this evening. And, uh, and so in Hebrews 1, uh, you, you see these, these pictures. Glance down through there and discover our present purpose, first off. In this, before eternity comes, what's our present purpose? Yeah, to be to the praise of His Lord. Three times it's said, that's a reversal of what Ezekiel said when he, God said to the people of Ezekiel's time, uh, you have defamed my holy name, you destroyed my holy name, but through you I'm going to vindicate the greatness of my, of my name. And Ephesians basically says here's how he's going to do it. He, he's going to change us, he's going to forgive us, he's going to cleanse us. And then he, he talks about the eventual purpose of it. Do you see at least two things in this text? that would be after, after the world, this world, this present world comes to an end. What would be the eternal purpose? The eternal, uh, the, what we get in eternity. Uh, best, best way I can say it, trying to use terms that are uh, as scriptural as possible. You see, there'd be two different verses would talk about things in the eternal picture. Pardon? Yeah, verse, verse 10 
so that he can unite his purposes. And he, you know, I went down through this text and just underlined the word purpose, the word will. You have each of those used three times. And then verse 10, it's a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. He's uniting all things in heaven and things on earth. He's bringing that all down. It sound like, again, the Lord's Prayer. We talked about this morning. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I always struggled with that. What do you mean, you know, when, how could it ever happen that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, if you look at this earth as, the, as something that is going to die and be reborn in a new heavens and new earth, just like you and I will die and raise and be reborn in a body that we can't even imagine when we compare it to this physical body that is as different as a seed is to the plant, well, the same thing is happening. And in that new heavens and new earth, in that new world to come, what kind of obedience will there be? God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it will be accomplished. I never grasped that before. Never really caught that. And, and that the kingdom being received in the hearts of men would accomplish those pictures uh, that, that are given there. And, and, and that, uh, that's what God... I mean, wouldn't it be silly for Jesus to say, and I want you to be sure and pray for this. It's never going to happen, but just go ahead and pray for it. You know, sure would be nice. Hey, God, sure would be nice. I know it's never going to happen. That, that doesn't make sense, does it? No. No, he's telling us to pray for something because this is the end goal and how God was going to accomplish that. Okay? So, so pretty cool. And there's one other thing that you can see in eternity in the text. You catch it? Verse 14. Give you a hint. <laughs> yeah, there is this guarantee, or I really prefer the marginal reading there, down payment. I think New American Standard translates it that way. Down payment of our inheritance until we acquire, and there's that word, possession of it. Until we acquire possession of this inheritance. And, uh, and that is to the praise of His glory as well. Right now, we're just getting a taste of it. We're getting a taste of the glories that will come, uh, as the Hebrew writer would say. But there is going to be this inheritance. And again, that inheritance involves inheriting the nations. So, we mentioned Psalm 2 this morning. Run back to Psalm 2. I knew this would happen. Run out of time too quickly here. But look back at Psalm 2. <clears throat> All right, Psalm 2, you notice in the first three verses, the, the battle is on. The, the rulers of the world, the kings of the earth, they're setting the peoples. So it's everybody. They're having a big get-together. They're, they're having a tumultuous rebel meeting, and they're getting together, and they're saying they're rising up against the Lord and against his, his, his anointed, and they're saying the opposite of the Lord's prayer. 
They're saying, let us, verse 3, burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords. They are not going to follow God, God or his anointed king that is coming. And of course, God, who sits in the heavens, he holds them in derision. He speaks them in his wrath. He laughs at them and instead says, I will declare the decree uh, and then the, or the, at least the, the Messiah says, I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now look at verse 8 and 9. I mentioned 8 this morning. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. All right, hold your place and go to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 26 and 27. Revelation 2, in fact, we're done with Psalm 2, uh, but Revelation 2, verse 26 and 27. Okay, he says, it, this is uh, in the, uh, uh, to Thyatira here, but he says at the end, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when the earthen pots are broken in pieces, even I myself have received authority from the Father. What we read, isn't that weird? So what we read in Psalm 2 that was said to the Messiah, then the Messiah, Jesus, writes to the church at Thyatira, and he says, if you conquer, I'm going to give you authority over the nations, and you're going to break them in pieces like a rod of iron. You're going to rule them that way. Okay, so... You know, you, we'd all probably have some questions about how that's all going to take place and what that looks like. And uh, I don't know, but again, it's the still picture of there's nothing out of our control and we have dominion over the world to come. But same thing he said to Jesus, he's saying then to us uh, concerning the world or the uh, time to come. Okay, look at Psalm 110. We briefly mentioned Psalm 110 this morning. Verse 1 and verses 5 through 7 talk about what's going on now in the present with the battle, just like we saw in chapter 2. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. But now notice verse 2 and 2 through 4. The Lord sends forth from Zion your the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Yeah, that sounds like the parable of the tares, right? He's ruling while the enemies still are in existence. Then verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. So there's our response. How are we going to serve the king? We're, gonna, we're going to do so freely, offer ourselves freely in that day. And then five and six, he's going to execute judgment on the nations. And we, of course, part of the kingdom uh, with him. Okay? Questions about that? Right, go to Isaiah, uh, uh, Isaiah 25. I think this is uh, th this is 
I remember when I was younger asking a lot of preachers this question. When you read the Old Testament prophets, are there, are there anything, or is there anything in the prophets that is, is it all fulfilled in New Testament days? In other words, by the time the Roman Empire is destroyed, doesn't that just pretty well fulfill everything the Old Testament said? And most preachers that I would talk to say, yeah, that's, that's basically what's, what's happening. And, and so now we're just waiting for the end. And yet there are passages like this. Uh, we read this morning in verse 2 and, and verse 2 how the, how the city, the world city is destroyed. But then uh, when you see in verse 6, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make, make for all peoples, and peoples of course refer to Jew and Gentile, etc. A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and of aged wine well-defined. So that gives you an idea of why Jesus oftentimes talks about in the, when the kingdom uh, comes, he said, he said, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, to, talking to the Jews, when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom, as sitting at table in the kingdom, and you yourselves thrust out. And then he says, they'll come from east and west and north and south and come and sit down at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but you yourselves cast out, cast out and there will be... Uh, what this this picture then of weeping and gnashing of teeth for what you have lost and that's that's that table picture and it's always a picture of just rich rich uh, beautiful blessings this is the reason Jesus and we did this in John this is the reason Jesus makes so much wine out of the water makes turns water to wine that is just absolutely beyond the ability for a little wedding feast to, to use. And he just blows it up because he's picturing the coming kingdom and the way that's going to be. And then you see in verse 7, swallowing up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all, he will swallow up death forever. So there's, there's the whole rule of Christ where death is the final enemy and it is taken out of the way, and, and that is removed. And then verse 8, Lord God's wiping away every tears, all the tears from their faces. And this is, of course, also spoken of in Revelation and seeing that, uh, that same picture. Uh, very quickly, final. Uh, go to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. This is after Judgment Day that is given there in Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15. So the enemies are all destroyed. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. By the way, you know why it's good that the sea is no more? It's not because you're not going to get to go to the beach. It, it's, uh, <laughs> it's because out of the sea came, came those beasts that the dragon called up. And the sea was always a picture of frothing up evil and stuff like this. So no more sea to, for that to happen. And then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. Who's the holy city? New Jerusalem. It's us. Galatians chapter 4 speaks of it as being us. We then come down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
He's fixed us all up in heaven, so to speak. He's, he's gotten us all, all beautiful and all dressed up, ready for the marriage of the Lamb. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They'll be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and then wiping away all tear, tears again. So as I mentioned this morning, I think the, the real crazy thing, something I struggled with, just about all my life in studying the scripture is I would read how the scripture would talk about in the garden God came down and dwelled with Adam and Eve and spoke to them and then in the tabernacle God came down and dwelled among his people in Exodus 20 25 and verse 8 make me a tabernacle so I may come down and dwell with you same with the temple there's always that picture and then Jesus comes down and shows his glory, John chapter 1. He comes down to do what? To dwell with his people in the fire at final end. He comes down to dwell with us. And I'm always thinking that the Bible is saying we're going to go up to, uh, you know, we're going to go up to be with him. But he's just bringing, well, where's God, where is God's dwelling place? Well, it's heaven. That, that's what we would say. It's, it's the third heaven. It's paradise. It's all of this. But here the picture is he comes down to dwell with us, making this whole new world to come, whatever that is. And I'm going to suggest, I was hoping we'd have time to do this. But in Romans 8, you remember when he's talking about how the earth groans? It's groaning to be delivered to the to the beauty of the sons of God. This is personal opinion right now. So personal opinion, chapter 2, verse 5. Um, uh, but but I, I think you're see, what you're seeing here is just as we, and I mentioned this a second ago, just as we die and are reborn into this whole new glory, this glorious body, this glorious future with the glory that God has given, so the earth is destroyed, dies, and is reborn into glory. Now that's a picture. I'm not suggesting you're supposed to go outside and look and go, well, I hope we still have Mount Everest or that we can climb it or some cuckoo thing like that. Uh, but it's, it's, you know, anytime God uses new heavens and new earth, he's just talking about, this is, this is I'm just going to recreate. All things are going to be new. I'm going to recreate something that I pictured for you briefly in the garden. You, you can say, yeah, that's weird. Amen. Shall the church say amen? That's weird. That's weird. <laughs> but anyway, that's where I am so far in my studies. And it, it's taken me a number of years to come to the point where I was confident enough about it to believe that I could say it and not be taking anybody off base or something. You can read those passages and come to grips with them, but it, it, it still is, is pretty plain. Those very last words of chapter 22, verse 5, uh, when he says, the Lord, there'll be no need of light, a lamp of the sun, Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. He keeps saying those words, that we will reign forever and ever. And there's way back in the beginning, what was lost is now regained. The world to come. The world to come. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs>
That's the time when I asked Tommy Peeler a question after he'd given a lecture. He says, one thing I do not want to happen around here is people asking questions I don't have an answer for. <laughs> In typical Tommy style. <laughs> yeah, I'm just telling you what he said. And, and that, that's all I know. That's, that's all we, I, I know to say. I, now, I will tell you, a lot of people get into this and they try to extrapolate details and try to read into things that I'm that's that's I, I, I think we need to tread lightly on when we start saying well I yeah I, I think uh, when he says the uh, sower is going to overtake the reaper that that means we'll be planting and sowing and reaping and all this but he's giving pictures here and the wolf is going to dwell with the lamb so there's going to be wolves and lambs there and uh, you know okay uh, just so there's no dogs, I'll be fine. <laughs> We're going to sing it there. And he says there's no dogs. I just want to keep emphasizing that. No dogs in heaven. I think we should change the, have the same tune and sing no dogs in heaven. That'd be good. Uh, okay. <laughs> Sorry to uh, say that to all you dog lovers. But uh, anyway. Uh, let's uh, let's, uh, let's uh, stand and, uh, and sing a song.